You are listening to Killer. This is case number 18, The Disappearance of Benjamin Brubaker. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. Benjamin Brubaker went to Ashland High School and stayed around town after graduation. For a short period, Brubaker found himself involved with the law and having to serve some time for a DUI-related incident. But by all accounts and interviews, by 2005, Brubaker had turned his life around, had a steady job, a girlfriend, and kept in constant contact with his mother. On October 13, 2005, the date stated by Brubaker's sister Beth, it's listed as October 30th on the Ohio Attorney General's website, Brubaker disappeared. He has not been positively identified since. Brubaker was 30 years old when he vanished. He was described as a white male, 5'10", blonde hair, blue eyes, and weighed 148 pounds. When someone goes missing, the two obvious scenarios are the person left of their own will or that something bad happened to them. Scenario number one, Ben left Ashland on his own accord and is living a happy, healthy life somewhere else. I was in jail with Ben years ago. He was debunked beside me used to tell me how easy it would be to pack up and leave this town with a new name and no one could find him, wrote Michael M. in a Facebook correspondence. There's no reason to doubt that conversation actually happened, but that's a common thought process when you're locked up. Further, it is a sentiment that many young Ashland residents utter at some point in their lives, wanting a fresh start somewhere else. While interviewing over 15 people about this case, another popular tip or rumor was that Brubaker got mixed up with the wrong people, and that's why he fled. But the arrests? Background and statements from friends don't put Brubaker in a Breaking Bad type situation. There's nothing to suggest he was running drugs, involved with any organized crime or gang, where going into self-imposed witness protection would be the only option. The year in which Brubaker went missing was inconvenient from a technology perspective. In terms of tracking him, the year 2005 was two years before the first iPhone. Everyone wasn't walking around with smartphones in their pockets capable of recording audio and video, not to mention geotracking and pinging cell phone locations. From the Attorney General's website, Brubaker has an Insane Clown Posse logo on his upper left arm. On his upper right arm, he has a tattoo of the ICP's jester holding a bird in one hand and a magic wand in the other hand with the words, The Great Malenko. Image searches were conducted on the crowds against the picture from the current ICP concerts and gatherings as maybe he was still involved and went to see the band live, but there was no luck. If Brubaker did leave on his own, He was successful in severing all ties, as according to police, family, and friends, he has never reached out, sent a letter, called, or had any contact with anyone from the Ashland area. Ben was really close with his mother, really close. There's no way that he would have left without telling her something, or at least sending her something with a cryptic postcard that only she would understand and know that he was all right. Nothing, said Matt Trukovich, a friend of Brubaker's. It was also alleged that Brubaker didn't pick up his last paycheck from work. If you're going to start a new life... Wouldn't you want to take all the cash you could? Scenario number two. 
something extremely unfortunate happened to Brubaker, but no one knows exactly what. Brubaker's girlfriend at the time, who has not been officially named since the case is still open and ongoing, was naturally someone of interest with regards to the case, especially with the rumors surrounding her. She was one of the last people to see Brubaker before he disappeared, according to authorities. Brubaker's girlfriend was cooperative and consented to be interviewed, said Lieutenant Smart. But as previously mentioned, there was nothing to substantiate the claim that she killed or conspired to harm Brubaker. Friends close to the couple, and even law enforcement, described the nature of their relationship as love-hate. Based on the evidence gathered and what police can say, all that was left surrounding her was a small-town speculation. The file sits on my desk. It is an active investigation. I talk to Ben's mom a lot. Whenever a lead comes in, we investigate it. We haven't had a sighting in years, Lieutenant Smart said. By sighting, Lieutenant Smart means a call about someone being somewhere and having seen Brubaker, like when he was, quote, spotted in Millersburg, Ohio years ago, but it didn't pan out. So what do you make out of uh, some of the stuff? Like, so the first thing that they bring up, you know, was that um, while he was in jail, he was talking about how he was going to try and go start a new life for himself. But what do you think about that in terms of Ashland? Because I know you live near the area and you know, the quote was something to the effect of like most people who live in Ashland dream about getting out. Is that something that's like a big sentiment in the area or, you know, kind of as a joke, like, you know, some people will say we're stuck in Ohio or, you know, stuff like that. But is that like a thing? It's kind of like the the Ohio type vibe. Ashland is a small town. It's not a village or anything like super tiny by any means. There's a university here. Population wise, I don't know all my all the demographics of the area, but it, it, it does have the small town vibe. You know, a fairly normal size high school. It's a private university, but still fairly decent in size. And I, th- I think it's just that mentality of northeastern Ohio, you know, stuck in the, what seems to be or feel like, you know, the edge of the Bible Belt most of the time. Yeah, I mean, th- that sentiment is shared a lot. In Ohio, I feel like, and a lot of times, I think it's more of a joke and kind of a, I don't know. Ohioans have this strange rite of passage where they enjoy pretending to feel tormented by where they're from. You know, a lot of people even say, like, you know, when you look at the sports teams, like we haven't won a championship up until the Cavaliers in 2016. And a lot of people would say, you've kind of taken that and it's become your badge, like that's your identity now, like the lovable losers. And so it's one of those things like Ohio's kind of had had this weird like loser mentality, I feel like, for a long time. And I, I'm just wondering if that's just one of those things where, you know, Brubaker kind of is, you know, ingratiating himself with inmates having that same attitude. You know what I mean? And I think a lot of it, there, there's a variety of people that live in Ashland. I mean, I, I don't know. Like I said, I haven't studied the demographics real closely, but if I had to say we're probably a little bit more heavily populated on the blue collar side versus white collar side. So you, you get that feeling of, Hey, I want to aspirations to do something more, go somewhere else and start fresh because you know, you got a 40 hour a week job, you're grinding away blue collar type job, like I said. So it, it fits into the typical, like you described that Northeastern Ohio mentality, I guess. What do you make about the uh, ties to the juggalo community? Nah, I, I don't make a whole lot of that. I think it, from what I've read and what I know of the case, I think he was just a fan. I don't think there's anything, you know, too much to draw there. The one thing that really caught me off guard about, you know, our intro into the case there and what we started with was, as you'll hear as we go further down through this case, there's a lot of speculations on did he leave 
or did something bad happen? And, you know, for some, if, if truly did leave, it's crazy to think that he just cut all communication ties. Like you mentioned in that first piece, nobody's heard from him in, you know, nearly 14 years now. Yeah. I mean, that it's relatively unheard of. We had a recent uh, case and I'm just going strictly by memory, but I saw this in the news. Some guy was found kind of wandering around and, uh, man, I don't remember where he was. And, uh, he said he was a missing kid from like, I don't know, quite a few years ago that he's, he's like a little older now, like that he was like playing it off. Like he was this missing kid and he wasn't at all. Like he was lying about it. <laughs> and it was just very strange. It was a bizarre case. The guy was from Ohio. I think the Cincinnati area, if I remember correctly, but it's just kind of strange, you know, like he probably heard that name at one point in time and then just like never forgot about it. And then just, he was wandering around saying that he was that missing child. <laughs> like these missing cases, they're very strange in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, when people pick up on them, you know, some cases for whatever reason really stick. I've never heard of this one, um, prior to us doing this episode. So, um, you know, it, it's weird how some hit and some miss and, and why, you know? Yeah. And that's a great point. And, and save that thought for later because I've got some additional thoughts on that one as well. Now we're going to discuss and analyze the timelines. So timeline number one, according to Brubaker's mother, on Thursday, October 13th, 2005, Ben called her and asked for a ride to Worcester the next day as he had a court appearance. The police files confirm that he had a court appointment for Friday, October 14th. Brubaker's boss at the time, Ed Carriglin of Carriglin Concrete, said, Earlier in that week, Brubaker had asked off work for court on Friday, but Brubaker needed his paycheck issued every Friday. Brubaker said he would be there early Friday morning to pick it up, but he never showed up for the check and or court, and no one has seen or heard from him since. Quote, I was waiting for Ben, and I looked down at his trailer, and I saw two people, who I thought must have been Ben and his girlfriend, having a fire in the morning. I wasn't going to wait for him to walk over for his paycheck, so me and the concrete crew left, Carriglin said. Carriglin said Brubaker lived with his girlfriend in a trailer next door to him in northern Ashland County in the village of Polk. Carriglin's house was down a long driveway, but with the leaves gone in the fall, it was easy for him to see the backyard where he said Brubaker stayed with his girlfriend who was also the mother of his child. Timeline number two. According to Brubaker's girlfriend, Carriglin's timeline and details are not correct. She said Brubaker left the week before. Quote, Ben had that car towed to my house. He wasn't living with me. I had his son, yes, but he wasn't living with me. And he had his car towed, because I had a garage at the time, in Polk. He had his car towed to my house to get it fixed, because he had wrecked it. The windshield was busted, and I don't know what else, but anyway, they had somebody come out and get the windshield fixed and all that. He had even said, after he got that car fixed, he was gone. He was going. I don't know where. Ben had an AA friend in New York, and honestly, that's where I thought he was going, the girlfriend said. I probably wasn't out there at no 6.30 in the morning. No. But yeah, I did have a fire pit out there, the girlfriend said. Carriglen and his wife, Judy, disputed that claim, as they both said Brubaker would walk back to their house for work from the girlfriend's trailer in Polk. Then the concrete crew would drive to the job site from Carriglen's. Brubaker's friend Matt Hatcher also said Brubaker was staying there at the time. Hatcher lived down the road and said he would see Brubaker a lot. But here's where the timeline gets tricky. The last call from Brubaker's cell phone was reportedly on October 7th, not on Thursday, October 13th. So Brubaker called his mother f for a ride from a different phone? if he was still around then. 
and he didn't use his own cell phone a single time in the week leading up to October 14th. Yeah, that that's particularly interesting. Um, so we can kind of walk that backwards, starting with the cell phone. Now, you mentioned, you know, the whole timeline of the calls. So the last call from his cell phone was on October 7th, not on the 13th, which is the day that people have said he's gone missing. Now, we're back in 2005. So if you recall 2005 technology, like we mentioned at the very top of this episode, you know, it wasn't a smartphone in every pocket. It was your little flip phones. Your regional carriers were quite big. You could go in and get those prepaid SIM cards and have those little prepaid phones. So without having context to what type of phone he had, I can easily see a scenario here where he couldn't either afford to pay for his cell phone bill, and so he didn't have it on, or he had like one of those prepaid phones, and so he just didn't use it if he didn't have to. It sounds like he was pretty low income being that he lived in a trailer out in Ashland where land is relatively cheap compared to some of the city areas around. So just going off that information alone, I don't think this is all that weird. Right. And to dive a little bit further into that, I don't even remember having a phone with a SIM card until probably 2008, 2009. I mean, I know I'm old and most people would say, why don't you use a jitterbug? But (laughs) yeah, it was probably just a flip phone or a prepaid phone. And, you know, maybe he didn't have it turned on and was just using someone else's phone. Maybe he was out of minutes, like you said. You know, it's one of those, those prepaid phones are kind of wonky and I haven't had to worry about minutes on my cell phone plan for a long time, right? But people still use them. I mean, I know, I think my grandparents even still use one where they buy, you know, a card with all these minutes on it. And my grandfather only has it turned on when he wants to use it. He doesn't leave it on to receive calls, only when he needs to make a call. Yep. Yeah. And that's how it used to be. Like, you know, you made a great point with the minutes. I didn't even touch on that. But yeah, like cell phone carriers, even big ones, if you had a normal phone, like a normal regular cell phone that wasn't prepaid, it's just your usual Verizon phone, your AT&T phone, your Sprint phone, whatever, they ran on the minute system. And it was, hey, you get, you know, for $30 a month, you get a thousand minutes and and that's it. And 200 text messages or whatever it was, you know. And uh, he could have easily just been out. Now, I think or would hope that you know, authorities would have looked at that a little bit and came to the conclusion like, hey, he wasn't out of minutes. It's weird that his phone wasn't working or wasn't on. But we just talked about how his car was wrecked and he had it towed to get fixed. So my theory would be here, maybe he just didn't have the cash to keep his phone running at the time because he was paying for his car to get fixed. So he was trying to, you know, shuffle around his funds there for a minute and prioritize some things, got his car taken care of, got the windshield fixed and all that if the girlfriend's story is true. And then, you know, maybe at the time he just had to shut his phone off because he either couldn't afford to either buy the extra prepaid card or pay the cell phone bill that month. Right. And if you look at the two timelines, I, you know, there's still a lot of speculation around what actually happened in the girlfriend's, you know, story as she was interviewed, with it being true or not. But it is kind of weird to see somebody out, I don't even care what time of year it is, having a fire at 6.30 in the morning, that's kind of that's kind of strange. <laughs> I mean, I don't recall. I used to live out in the country. I haven't always lived in the city, you know, or in a town. And, you know, one of the popular things to do when we were living out basically in the middle of nowhere was to have campouts and have friends over and stuff. But 
we were still never up at 630 in the morning with a fire going, especially a, a big fire. Yeah, no kidding. That is really strange. Yeah, I don't... That whole thing is very weird how his uh, his girlfriend's disputing being witnessed with him there, but then there's other people saying, like, no, he was there. <laughs> like, something fishy's going yeah, on. Yeah, essentially two people that live on the same road or, you know, within a vicinity of line of sight, at the very least, that know he's living there, know he walks up to work to leave in the morning to his boss's place. Yeah, it, it's fishy. Yeah, that's that, it's bizarre. You know, you have his boss saying, like, you know, no, I saw him over there. And then his girlfriend saying, nah, he was never here. He hasn't been here for a while. <laughs> That's very strange. Very, very strange. So moving on, the next question that we want to ask is, did Ben flee? In initial law enforcement notes, both Brubaker's mom and his sister Beth said Brubaker had talked about moving to New York as his AA friend Steve was there. Earlier in the month, his phone records show a 14-minute call to a number in Big Flats, New York. We called and talked to Steve. He said, Ben never came to New York, Beth said. It was not uncommon for Ben to disappear for months at a time, sometimes hiding from a warrant or other things, according to Hatcher. A prior cellmate reportedly said that Brubaker told him that he would leave Ashland without a trace and never come back. After not hearing from Brubaker for months, his girlfriend said that she thought that he went to New York or that he was back in prison. A source told Ashland County Sheriff's Department that Brubaker was living in West Virginia and would come up to Millersburg to buy drugs. The sheriff's office pursued the tip but found nothing to substantiate the claim. It seems the tipster wanted a felony charge dropped for the information on Brubaker. If something bad did happen to Brubaker, whoever was responsible got a two-month head start. Since there was no body or any physical evidence pointing to foul play, it was treated as a missing persons case. The lead investigator at the time, former Ashland County Sheriff's Detective Ed Staley, started the investigation in January of 2007 and talked to the girlfriend, Brubaker's family, and his friends. When asked recently, Staley, now with Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation, said he couldn't remember any details from the case. I've seen over 100 homicide cases since then. Good luck, Staley said. Staley never went inside the trailer of the girlfriend. Now assigned to the case, Ashland County Sheriff's Officer Lieutenant Scott Smart said the fire pit was examined, but nothing of any significance was found. One of the initial rumors Staley heard, according to his notes, was that Brubaker might have been involved with the Mexican drug cartel. There's no evidence of any involvement with the cartel, however. There was also a rumor that Brubaker fled to Arkansas, according to the notes, as he had been there before with some friends from Ashland that had property down there. But again, there has been nothing to substantiate that. When Brubaker didn't pick up his paycheck, Carriglin said he expected his employee the next day, Saturday, October 15th, to show up and work on his dump truck. They had previously agreed that Brubaker could have Friday off for court if he showed up on Saturday. When again Brubaker was a no-show, Carriglin said he went down the lane to the girlfriend's trailer to inquire about Ben's whereabouts. She told me Ben got into a fight with my dad and took off down the road towards the Polk General Store. I told her I gotta have my dump truck keys and left. The next day, I went back down there to get the keys off Ben, but he wasn't there. She went into the trailer and came back with Ben's set of keys. He kept all of his keys on one ring. I looked through them, got my truck keys, and walked back, Carriglin said. When asked if he remembered seeing a car or a Dodge key on the ring, Carriglin said no, but all his keys were there. He always had his keys on him. The evening of Friday, October 14th, Hatcher said he saw a tow truck backed up to the garage connected to the trailer of the girlfriend. That prompted him to call Brubaker's phone and leave a message inquiring about why his car was being towed. Hatcher never saw a car hooked up. However, if something bad happened to Ben Brubaker, whoever was involved would have gotten rid of his car. 
If Brubaker drove it away, wherever it ended up, we give a strong indication of the missing man's whereabouts. The car has not been seen since it was at Brubaker's girlfriend's house, where it was towed in 2005. I don't know why they don't look up where his car is, the girlfriend said. However, here's where finding Brubaker's car gets complicated. No one remembered exactly what vehicle he had, as Brubaker was a car guy and had several throughout the years. Hatcher recalled it being a two-door with a hatchback, had to be a Dodge, most likely a Dodge Daytona, an 88 or an 89. Before Brubaker started working with Ed Carriglen of Carriglen Concrete, he was employed at Mirror Image, a body shop in Worcester. Although no longer in business, the former body shop owner was tracked down in Port Clinton, where he was working at a marina. Quote, Ben really wanted that car. I said, okay, Ben, go get it, he said. I ain't got no license. So I said I would go up to the dealer and get it for him. We went up to Creston Auto Sales, and Ben said he didn't have enough money to buy it. Ha ha, so I said, okay, I'll loan you the money, Jeremy Jett said. After possessing and driving the car for a while without a license, Brubaker eventually got into a wreck, smashing out the front windshield and damaging the bumper and frame. It was subsequently towed by Bates Garage to the girlfriend's house, as she had a garage that would protect the vehicle from the autumn elements. Hatcher said he saw a tow truck backed up to the girlfriend's trailer the day Brubaker went missing. An employee from Bates looked back through the records but found no towing service matching the Daytona or Polk location around October 14th. So if Brubaker's car was towed, not driven away, it wasn't from Bates, according to the shop. How many towing companies within a 50-mile radius of Polk could have towed Brubaker's car around October 14th, 2005? Quote, a company came to the house and put the windshield in it, the girlfriend said, but she couldn't recall which business did it. What company would have fixed the windshield, or do they have a record of repairing Brubaker's car? As far as the car's title, Hatcher and Brubaker's mom said there was no title associated, and Jet thinks it could have been a salvage title. Years ago, Brubaker's sister Beth contacted Creston Auto concerning the title, but they never responded. She believes the car may have been sold without transferring the title. Regardless of whether there was a title or not, in 2005, one could still drop a car at a junkyard to be pieced out with little to no questions asked. How many salvage yards are within a 50-mile radius of Polk, and do they have records of receiving an 88 Dodge Daytona around the end of October 2005? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting things that are going on here. Um, you know, uh, this whole AA friend Steve thing seems a bit strange. So there's not really a whole lot of backstory on this AA stuff. So assuming he had a substance abuse problem and was in AA and then had a sponsor or something, or maybe another person who was at the same AA meetings at that time. And conveniently, the the girlfriend seems to talk about this AA friend. Does his sister talk about the AA friend as well? I believe both his mom and sister refer to the AA friend as well. So that seems like it could be a legit story. And it was not uncommon for Ben to disappear for months at a time. That's also strange. Where, where would you go for months and not talk to anyone? Yeah, I thought that was strange as well. Yeah, and his sister and mom did, you know, call and talk to this friend Steve and confirm that he had never went to New York. And I think the girlfriend might have as well. But yeah, I don't know. I guess I've never disappeared for months at a time. It is a little bit strange. But it did sound like he had friends in a lot of different locations. He had this friend Steve in New York. He had friends that were not named you know, supposedly in Arkansas, where he did go on occasion. So, you know, if he was working a different job or in between jobs, maybe he did disappear months at a time just uh, to go somewhere else. And I don't know if he's working, making, you know, day jobs, cash at hand, different places. You know, it's hard to say. Yes. 
just strange um thinking about just disappearing for months at a time but then you have people saying like he wouldn't he wouldn't go without talking to his mom so like something's just not adding up here for me you know what i mean there's no they're riding both sides of the fence almost in a lot of regards like on it is very hard to track this down because on one side you have people saying oh no he wouldn't have gone without talking to his mom like he'd send her some kind of cryptic message he wouldn't just disappear like that and then on the other hand you're like, yeah he, he was gone for months at a time coming from the same person i believe his sister said both of those things right you know it, it's hard to to go back it's been such a long period of time now maybe they at the time they were used to this you know you know go somewhere hang out with friends for a couple months not hear from them a whole lot and then he would end up coming back at some point i don't know if having the child with the girlfriends what had would drew him to come back occasionally you know i I can't say for sure i think the weird thing was two things that i thought was really weird on what we just talked about was the girlfriend's like again i don't know if he went to new york to be with his friend steve or is he back in prison i think that would have been pretty easy to determine whether he was back in prison especially with the police investigating the case would have known if he would have got arrested somewhere else i would think yeah, you would assume that it'd be fairly easy for them to track that down, as long as it was somewhere relatively close to the area. Now, if he was like somewhere far away and went to prison, they may not know about it. I don't know how good the, in 2005 especially, I don't know how good the records system was with sharing information about inmates. You know, like, say he went to Nebraska and got arrested. Like, does Nebraska's, you know, correction system somehow integrate to Ohio where we can start looking people up to see if they're in there. Like, I don't know if that was the thing. And I don't know if it was in 2005, if it's not today. It should be, but I don't know if it is, you know, politics and all those things aside. I don't don't know that it's something that is instituted at a federal level where you can go figure that stuff out easily. Yeah. and, And then the other thing that this whole car situation is very, very strange. You know, he's got this 88 Daytona, he's driving it without a license, couldn't afford it, borrowed money, was supposed to pay the guy back. I don't know if it says if he does or doesn't pay him back. I'm assuming he does pay him back. And then, you know, like this car is just like wrecked and then towed and like what's going on with the car situation? Yeah, I thought that was bizarre as well, especially from the standpoint of the dealership selling a car without transferring a title. I didn't even know if that's legal from a business perspective. Well, that's just the sister's words though. That wasn't, no one's officially said that happened. They never commented back to her when she reached out. And I did do a little bit of research, I think, in Creston Auto Sales, the dealership that it was supposedly bought at is no longer in business. So I think that that's why they also didn't return, you know, a call for questions and answers because they were no longer in business. But, you know, all that aside, it's just, you know, very strange, (laughs) the car. And I I do know what they say. The one thing that I can back up a little bit in what we talked about was the, the towing company getting the car and piecing it out but you would have to still have a title i've had a couple old cars that you know you just drive until they don't work anymore you call a salvage company up they'll come and pick it up they'll give you a hundred dollars for the car because they're just going to recycle it and they haul it away but they won't do it without a title i know that for a fact yeah yeah but just like any business i'm sure there's some where they do some shady stuff where cars get dropped mysteriously appear mysteriously don't have a title and they don't care. I'm positive that probably happens more frequently than it's supposed to, depending on where you're at, especially probably out in that, in the country areas where it's, you know, you know, a little less populated, a little less people snooping around your business. Right. I mean, hell, the, uh, 
the Avery family from making a murderer has a salvage yard. <laughs> I don't exactly expect them to be running it on the up and up. Yeah. It, well, if, since you brought that up, yeah, it's just seems like a shady business in general in, in some points. But going back to the Avery case and making a murderer, they did find her car and it was at his place. So, but they haven't found this car yet. It just disappeared off the face yeah, of the Yeah, exactly. Earth. Yeah. And it's just, there's a lot of bizarre circumstance going around, especially right around the timeline of the disappearance. There's, you know, so many strange things are occurring. And it's just like a lot of, like I said, there's a lot of contradictory evidence going on up to this point. So, you know, it's really hard to start formulating an opinion on what actually probably happened. But with all of that contradictory information, how much of that is being yielded from the police investigation? You know, how much emphasis are they putting on certain pieces of this? You know, we there was mention of the original detective, uh, Staley, I believe his name was, who was originally assigned to the case, who was moved on to a, sounded like a state-level criminal investigation job, who said, hey, I, I remember nothing about the case. I've seen 100 cases since then. You know, good luck. And that was all he had to say about it, <laughs> yeah. which is kind of weird, because I think, at least if I was in that position and that was my job, in, I don't care if I had seen a thousand cases, I'm still going to, you know, take the initiative to go back through my notes. And like, if somebody's asking me questions about it, I'm going to provide whatever information I can. I'm not just going to say good luck. You know, to me, it sounded like he was like, almost like, you know, go pound salt, fuck off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And I got that same impression too. I'm glad you brought that up because that was a really strange response from an investigator. You know, like somebody whose job it is to do that stuff. It wasn't like, you know, the girlfriend or something like after years of being annoyed about this case or whatever, whether, whether or not she has anything to do with it, you know, from a, I guess like from a shady standpoint, like, you know, like she's not telling people like, all right, I've dealt with this enough. Go away. You know, it's, it's one of the people who are investigating it or just like, Hey, yeah. Um, sorry about your luck. I don't, I don't remember anything. See ya. And it's like, that's a very strange way to be. <laughs> I mean, even if you don't really recall much, you know, that good luck, like, okay. I don't know. It was very odd and off-putting. Yeah. And, and there wasn't a lot of media coverage around this. I mean, th this Adam Fox that covered this case and then we're, we're pulling information directly from what he had published. He did a real good four-part series on this. But outside of that, I tried to find audio or anything, you know, direct directed back to any kind of, you know, further media coverage of this. And it really wasn't. So maybe that's there just wasn't that emphasis. Maybe that's why that detective said, "Ah, good luck." I don't remember. It's, it's still, it's still weird. Those things kind of go hand in hand in a way, you know. Like the police get some information, they give it to the media, the media puts it out on the news, and then you know, here you go. But it seems like the police don't really have a whole lot of info, and it doesn't sound like they really tried to get a whole lot of info. You know, like that's the vibe I'm getting. Just they weren't really that into this case. Sounded like. Eh, seems like he probably just disappeared. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> right, and that's that's the part that bothers me the most is, and, and going back to what I said, you know, keep that sentiment for later. You know, why, in general, not just this case, but in general, why do these missing persons cases handled so differently? I mean, there's a lot of media attention, obviously, when someone is found and there's that happy ending to the story and, and the media will exploit it, you know, to hell and back. But then you have just this this random missing persons case that has a lot of interesting details around it, speculation, you know, 
shady business for sure, but they don't seem to really care or pay attention to it. This is just this guy who sounds really strange. Yeah. It's just this guy from Ashland who, you know, he's an angel by no means. He's been in trouble in and out of jail, but nothing serious. A couple of charges here and there. Sounds like he was trying to do the right thing by showing up to go to court that day, but he disappeared, you know, the day before. So it doesn't sound like they're, to me, my opinion is it doesn't sound like they're real interested in investigating this case because it's just, you know, whatever. This guy was a little bit of a troublemaker. He was working. He was trying to do the right thing, show up for his court date. But, you know, oh, well, we've had a few run-ins with him. You know, who gives a crap? It's kind of that vibe I'm getting. Yeah, that's how it definitely feels to this point. All right, there's the next section of the fire and the mystery hole that we need to talk about. So if you ask around Ashland, Ohio, Benjamin Brubaker isn't missing. He was murdered and his body was burned in a tire fire in Polk, Ohio. Quote, that is the predominant story of the rumor mill, unquote, said Detective Lieutenant Scott Smart of the Ashland County Sheriff's Office, the detective assigned to the case. But there's nothing to substantiate that claim. Tires would get hot enough to burn the body completely, they said. If you start a tire fire, let alone one burning a corpse, the stench would stretch for miles along with the thick black plume of smoke. In a stranded vehicle survival situation, you burn the tires as a last resort after all other survival tricks have been used, as the signal would travel far and wide. Brubaker's neighbor and boss, Kerriglin, said before he left for work, he saw a fire on Friday, the morning of the 14th, at the girlfriend's trailer. It didn't have black smoke, but it was a big fire, with the flames probably as high as a person's head, Kerriglin said. A month or so after Brubaker went missing, Kerriglin's wife, Judy, said that she saw two men on the girlfriend's property carrying a trash bag to the back of the lot. They proceeded to dig a hole. She thought, oh no, it must be a dead cat or something. But instead of burying the bag, they emptied its contents of the bag and filled the hole, according to Judy. She cannot give a physical description of the two men. Years later, the girlfriend sold the trailer. Would the new owners be open to strangers searching their property, trying to locate the mysterious hole? Would a metal detector and a bunch of volunteers be enough? The sheriff's department confirmed there wasn't enough for a search warrant but with homeowner permission, there would be a possibility for a cadaver dog. Still, there's little evidence to suggest if there was foul play that the body would have been disposed of on site. The cadaver dog would be, for one, of the many locations tied to the possible accomplices. Quote, Ben told me, if I ever end up fucked up or dead, it was her, said Brubaker's good friend, Matt Hatcher. Ben said he woke up one night to a knife to his throat. She was standing over him and told him, it would be so easy to kill you in your sleep, Hatcher said. The she was Brubaker's girlfriend at the time and mother of his child. She denies any involvement in his disappearance. Ed Kerriglin, Brubaker's boss at the time, when he went missing, a neighbor of the girlfriend told a similar story as Hatcher. Quote, Before work one day, Ben was saying his girlfriend was over him in the bed with a hammer, threatening him, Kerriglin said. The girlfriend was asked about both of these accounts. Quote, No, ha ha ha. Why would he have stayed there? That's not true at all, the girlfriend said. No. He would have killed me if I would have done something like that. He would have hurt me if I would have tried to do, you know, anything, the girlfriend said. I even tried to lock him out of my house. Well, way before that happened, when he first got out of prison, when Blank, which I'm assuming was their child's name, was only like six months old or something at the time. I even tried to lock him out before, and he kept getting in or coming in. So I don't know why he would have said that he was the one coming in, she said. So there's quite a bit to unpack there. I mean, not even from the the domestic side of things, but what do you think about not only the comments around the fire, but around these two guys digging a hole in the backyard and burying something? 
Yeah, well, I'm starting to formulate an opinion. Caraglen has something to do with this. I, I feel like he knows more than he's saying. I don't know why I feel that way, but that's kind of the that's kind of what I'm picking up. You know, it, they live very close together. They mysteriously see a fire in the morning. Uh, girlfriend disputes the fire. Then they see two men carrying trash bags. I don't know. Some something weird is going on now. Whether I don't know, like obviously coming up with this on the fly. So I don't know if, uh, you know, if Carrie Glenn has something to do with it in the sense of like involved in a negative connotation, like where they're, you know, disposing, helping dispose of the body or something like that. But they could be, and then they could be saying things that are kind of covering their tracks and shifting the blame onto the girlfriend a little bit. Right. Well, you could back that up by saying, I mean, you could say that that's true based on what Caraglen is telling the authorities about how he relayed the story about her standing over him with a hammer and all this other, you know, crazy stuff. When he was sleeping, he'd wake up and she'd be above him. I mean, that kind of lends to that, to that scenario for sure. I never, I didn't think about it that way. And I, I'm kind of glad that you came into this like completely void, almost completely unknowing the case or anything about it. I, I never thought about that side of it at all. Yeah, I was actually when when you sidebar here for a minute when you mentioned you were going to do this case and I I had no idea about this case. You know, a lot of this stuff I'm hearing for the first time, so I'm trying to think about it analytically while we're you know going through this narrative and talking through it. And it's kind of refreshing to not have a bias, you know, as we go through. So I'm just trying to get creative here with what what I think may have happened because what's interesting to me is you know you keep hearing these you know, his boss saying stuff and then the girlfriend saying or disputing something similar, you know, it's really weird how they kind of keep going back and forth between these two. And it, it just seems strange to me, like something isn't adding up. The boss knows a lot more than I think that they're saying something weird is going on there. Like we saw a fire down there at six in the morning. Well, that's a really strange time for anybody to be having the fire, especially if you murdered somebody. I'm not having a fire at six o'clock in the morning. That's just bizarre. It's drawing way too much attention to you. Wouldn't you do that at like midnight, 10 o'clock, you know, 11 o'clock, like at normal time, people would be out having a bonfire. You know, that would just be very strange behavior to mysteriously have a large fire at six in the morning. And it could have been a fire that was from the night before too. I mean, you know that, I mean, and it was made apparent that you burn, you burn tires in a fire and it makes a very thick, heavy black smoke, almost like a signal fire. But they could have been, that fire could have been going from the night before, and nobody would have ever seen the smoke if it's dark. Most likely. But that stuff does travel pretty far, so somebody could have seen something. You know what I mean? Maybe not. It could have worked out where nothing happened. But yeah, it's just interesting um, the way that Kerriglin is involved. And something just isn't adding up to me. Strangely, like, yeah, he requested off Friday. It was supposed to come in Saturday. Like, is it coincidence that that those things happened or, you know, then I saw the girlfriend that morning with the fire and like, he's got a story for every angle almost like too many stories in my opinion. Something weird's going on. I'm glad you brought that up because you got my mind like seriously turning right now because, okay, he disappeared the day before he was supposed to go to court, right? Yeah. The next day he's missing, doesn't go to court, doesn't go to work obviously on Saturday. He's still missing at that point two days in. You would think if somebody, you would think if he disappeared on his own, got in that car like some claim and drove off, he would have his keys with him, right? We talked about that a little bit ago that 
the boss says he always has his keys on him. So if he's always got his keys on him, he obviously would have his probably his personal vehicle keys on there as well. So it was almost like Carriglin knew the keys were at the trailer. He went down to get his truck keys for work. You see where I'm going with that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I do. That's where I'm going. And what's interesting is, you know, Carriglin, they work in concrete. So they've got a lot of heavy equipment. They've got concrete. You know, who's to say that, you know, say some foul play happened and uh, someone mysteriously gets encased in some concrete and put somewhere, you know? I, I don't know. There's a lot of odd, convenient little things that Carriglin keeps dropping, some strange nuggets of information that I'm finding to be a little bizarre in the sense of the story. Like, yeah, he went missing. The whole car situation I'm kind of ignoring because, I don't know, there's too much weird stuff going on. But if you just listen to what Carriglin's saying, he has almost too many answers. Like you're saying, like he had an answer about these keys and, oh, he always had his keys on him. And, you know, oh, he was supposed to be in work on Friday, but he had court. so. You know, he requested off. Well, he knew that he was, you know, like, it, say these two had a falling out for whatever the reason. And Kirkland's like, yeah, I'm going to off this dude or or whatever, or do something to him. And it got maybe, maybe he was going to fight him or beat him up or something. I mean, there's no reports of those two having any kind of, you know, issues, uh, you know, like that. But if one of them is missing or dead, <laughs> you might not hear that. Like, it might have been something personal between the two of them. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I He's sending a lot of red flags for some reason for me. Okay. Hate to say it again, but keep that thought for a little bit later because we're going to cover another interesting piece here towards the end of the, the case. So did they act alone? If the girlfriend was involved in Brubaker's disappearance, did she act alone? The girlfriend is aware people around the town thought her dad helped her get rid of the body. They really need to leave my dad alone. That would be greatly appreciated. Please don't contact him. He's just a hardworking man. That's all he does. He works, the girlfriend said. It's not hard to imagine, given the love-hate relationship Ben and the girlfriend had, that if the father thought that his daughter was being abused, that he would have stepped in and helped. Hatcher said she saw a late 80s brown S10 pickup truck parked at the girlfriend's trailer shortly after Brubaker went missing. It had West Virginia license plates, and the owner could have something to do with the case. After Brubaker went missing, the girlfriend went on to marry another man, T.O. The girlfriend contends that she was pregnant with Brubaker's child in 2005, not T.O.'s, and that T.O. was not around at the time Brubaker was last seen, although they did see each other then. Initially, the girlfriend thought Brubaker left for New York or was in prison. Now, after nearly 13 years, she thinks Brubaker's dealing with drugs and the wrong people is why he disappeared. A month or so before he took off in that car, he got that car fixed and took off. Maybe two months before, Larry Dudley Jr. was found in Mansfield, in the ghetto of Mansfield. Nobody knows who did it. He was left unconscious. The toenails were gone off of his feet. It was obvious... Someone had drug him behind the car, and then they found him in somebody's front yard in Mansfield. I don't think they ever found out who did that to Larry Dudley Jr., the girlfriend said. I honestly think the same thing happened to him, Brubaker, happened to Larry Dudley Jr., honestly. They owed a lot of money. They owed everyone in Mansfield money for drugs, the girlfriend said. Okay, now we're going to go on to one of the last parts of the case. It's, it's titled The Mystery Letter. What if the accomplice didn't know any of Brubaker's or the girlfriend's friends or family? And that is why he, she, has remained in the shadows for so long. That's exactly what an anonymous letter sent to the Ashland County Sheriff's Office in 2009 alleged. Quote, I am a man of God and will normally be sworn to confidentiality in these matters, but my conscience will not allow me to hold this information, the letter said. Someone came to the author of the letter and told them about a confession they had heard about Brubaker's murder, according to the letter. It's an issue of God's law versus that of man. 
as the Ohio Revised Code requires priests, attorneys, counselors, etc., to alert law enforcement of any felony that they are made aware of. The letter alleged the attack was premeditated, as the perpetrators would sit in their cars during work breaks and plan. Further, that there was the first attempt at a murder, but it failed. On the second attempt, perpetrators got Brubaker drunk and waited until he passed out. He was then hit on the back of the head, neck, spine area, while another individual used a chain or rope to strangle Ben. The body was then transported to an outbuilding until it could be disposed of properly. The note alleged the body was moved to a farm near Orville. The corpse was burned and that they would not raise any eyebrows as burning carcasses at that site was common. The letter concluded by discussing Brubaker's car, the biggest piece of missing evidence from the entire case. The letter alleges the vehicle didn't have a title, so an alleged perpetrator went back to where Brubaker bought the car and purchased the title with a debit credit card, and then the vehicle was sent to a scrapyard in Akron. Yeah, so I wasn't aware of the end of this. You know, like you had mentioned earlier, I'm pretty cold to this, uh, even reading it as we go through the case right now. I intentionally didn't really read a lot of it because I kind of wanted it to be a surprise. So this does tie in a little bit to the theory we were just kicking around right before that last section there, and that is somebody he worked with supposedly confessed, you know, and then and then the priest is going and, you know, telling uh, the authorities this. So it does kind of lend a little bit of credence to the fact that I was saying, like, Kerrigan sounds like he knows a little too much and has a few too many convenient details to drop. And, you know, that's one of those things. You know, when you analyze someone when they're lying to you, think of all the time someone lies and they have all these details. And then what's the saying? You know, you can't keep your lies straight because you have to come up. They come up with too many convenient details to make it seem more believable. And then when you actually go back and start nitpicking and it's like, well, why would you say that? And why would you say that? And why would you say that? Oh, it's because, you know, in normal conversation, I wouldn't think to say these things, but I've been so rehearsed to the story I'm going to tell that you know, I've come up with these convenient plot details that help fit my narrative. And I feel like Carrie Glenn has a lot of those. And I don't know if the girlfriend is involved at any level or not, because she seems strange in some regards. But Carrie Glenn or someone that works with Carrie Glenn seems like he seems like he's in on it to me. Like, it seems I'm of the opinion there was a murder that happened. And that's exactly where I was going. And now, I'm glad you came into this cold because I had not thought about this whatsoever when I put this together and, and took this information from Ashland and Richland source. To me, and this is just pure opinion, I'm not accusing anybody of anything, but to me, do you think it's possible that Caraglin is the one who confessed to this priest? And even in that time of confession, you know, even though he felt so terrible about either he was directly involved or knew exactly what happened, he was still trying to tell a story where he was giving all of the details about what happened, but still even trying to pin it on somebody else. Yeah. Like I don't necessarily know that he did it. I'm not saying that he did. He could have, but he seems like he knows about it. So whether it was someone he worked with or a friend of his or something, you know, something like that or coworker, you know, it sounds like to me, he has a lot more information than is being shared, you know? And I don't know that he was the one who confessed because, you know, who knows? That's just way pure speculation at this point. You know, like, I have no idea. But um, I would like to think that he definitely knows more than he's leading on. And like I said, something just is really fishy about that guy to me. It, something isn't sitting right. I don't know what it is. And like I said, he has access to a lot of heavy machinery and equipment, it sounds like. 
easy ways to get rid of things, vehicles or people, you know, it's, it's awfully strange. You would like to think though, that if someone was able to go purchase that title, like they would have had to know where he got that car from. And how would they know that? Like, you don't know where I bought my car from. You have no idea where I got my car. If a title is missing or lost, I still think you can go to uh, the Bureau of Motor Vehicles and purchase a new title. You still have to know some information about the car, though. You still have to know the VIN number and some of the other details. Yeah, which you can get from having the car physically in your possession. But this says the letter alleges the vehicle didn't have a title. So an alleged perpetrator went back to where Brubaker bought the car and purchased the title with a credit or debit card. Now that line could just be incorrect, but if it's true and it's face value, they went back to Creston Auto Sales. Well, how would they know that he got his car from Creston Auto Sales? Like, who the hell is telling? Like, uh, that that doesn't add up to me at all. Like, that doesn't make sense. Like, most people aren't talking about where they bought their car from. It doesn't sound like this guy. Like, I don't know what's the timeline of when he owned the car. I guess is is that question because maybe if he recently purchased it, then possibly he told somebody about it. But it sounded to me like he had it for a little while. And it sounded like the only person that was involved directly with the bo- the purchase of that car was his his previous manager or boss at that body shop, who now lives, you know, geographically speaking, and people that don't know the area, the body shop that he worked in Worcester is probably an hour to an hour and a half away from where this previous body shop owner lives in, in the Port Clinton area. Yeah, you're probably talking like 60 to 70 miles away. Like, they're not close. Yeah. And... That's what is kind of leading me to believe that he had this car prior to working at this concrete place and most likely didn't, you know, really, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you could have said where you got the car in passing, but I don't know. That's just a detail that I I wouldn't feel like somebody would know intimately. Like I might tell you, yeah, I got my car over here at this Dodge dealership or whatever, but like, are you really going to retain that later on? Like, I don't know. It just seems very strange. Something's not sitting right with me with that either. And maybe it's just me. Maybe I just don't pay attention when people talk. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, if I get a car, I'm not going saying I'm not giving free props to the place I bought it. Hey, I bought my car here. You know, great place. I mean, I've done that on a couple occasions, but. Yeah, but someone probably directly asked you, like, I would have asked you, hey, where'd you get your car from? Because, you know. You got a new car. I hadn't seen you in a while. You had this new car. Where'd you get that from? When did you get that? Like, I didn't know you had this new car. You know, it's like, yeah, because you're just not going around telling people I got a new car and here's where I got it from. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you have to pry that information out of somebody. The only thing I can think of that makes me think that, like, just slightly, I, I don't really think this a lot, but very little, is that the type of car that he had was so rare. Like, you don't hear people driving around Dodge Daytonas, you know? So maybe that spurred a lot more conversation around where he got it from. That could have been because it was so it was so strange of a car to have, you know. So that's the only thing I can think of that would cause me to believe that maybe it got talked about a little more than your average, like you know, Toyota Camry or something. You know, like no one cares where you got your Toyota Camry from, but you got this weird Dodge Daytona that you know, an '88 or an '89, and it's 2005 at this point. I mean, who knows? Maybe it was '04 when someone was talking to him about it. I don't know, but it's just strange. It's a strange thing to to do, to go back to, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to wrap this up in my opinion by saying, I think Kerriglin has intimate knowledge of what happened to him. I think it was foul play. And I think that he had the means to destroy and get rid of a lot of the evidence, uh, just based off of what I'm reading. Those are the things that I'm going with right now. 
And this is all the information I know is what's being presented today because I haven't gone and researched this independently. So that's that's my current thought. Um, there's just too many convenient details that Kerriglin has or knows about. You know, it just makes too much sense to me that he's got some intimate knowledge of this. And now that we've talked this through, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna agree with you. Heavy equipment possibility to get rid of some evidence, even of something like a vehicle, is just there's too many indicators there, and and it's it seems very very strange to me that. He, like you said, he's providing convenient answers. And the confession letter, it makes me feel even more strongly about that because the person points out that somebody, it, it sounds like it's somebody that he worked with. And for those concrete cr- type crews, those are usually pretty small work groups. You know, there's might, there might be at most a half dozen guys that work on a crew like that. You know, there, there's a lot more questions to be answered there, in my opinion. Yeah. And the one last thing I'm going to say as I'm thinking about this is if somebody though really did go buy that title and they purchased it with a debit or credit card, the bank should have had a record of that and been able to track back who bought it. Exactly. So why, why didn't that happen? So I don't know that I buy that story. That sounds very strange to me. Something's not adding up with that piece. But that being said, I, I think I still stand firm in what I just said and, and you know where you're going with that too. Um I, I think that there's not much else that you can say based off the information that we have. Like I don't necessarily think the girlfriend did it unless unless she conspired with, you know, his boss, which could have happened. Yep. And I totally agree. And, you know, just to wrap up this case and I wanted to make sure that this was, you know, there was more awareness brought to this because like we alluded to earlier, you know, what is the difference between this case and what other missing persons cases, you know, I, like I said earlier, I alluded to the fact that, you know, he might've been in a little bit of trouble and the authorities just didn't care as much. But when it comes right down to it, this is a missing person, whether it's male or female, they've been in trouble. You know, the news tends to really glorify some of these missing persons cases where it's a pretty young college girl oh my, how could this happen, right? But, you know, at the end of the day, this is still a person, he still has a family, and, you know, they still have a lot of unanswered questions. They're still looking for him, you know, 13, 14 years after the fact. So I did this also as kind of a favor to some people that are a little bit closer to this case, and I'm hoping that the message reaches, you know, somebody out there. There's very few images of of Ben, so maybe when we post this out on Instagram, we'll put the picture out there and treat this more of like a, public service announcement say hey you see anything know anything let us know we'll pass the word along right and if you have any information you know please reach out to the ashland county police department that being said that's a wrap for this week join us next week as we hit a new milestone on killer our first lady killer stay safe